Kim is going to read Ephesians 3, 8 through 13, and then pray, and Mike's going to teach. Here you go. Thank you. All right. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Father God, we just thank you for this time to be able to come together regularly and meet as a, as a larger fellowship. And Father, we just ask that Mike just brings us closer today through his wisdom, his discernment, his teaching, so that we can truly, truly emulate you in the world and the word of God just resonates so deeply in our hearts, Lord, that it causes transformation in each of us. Father, I just pray this on behalf of this congregation, in your precious, holy, righteous name. Amen. John, thanks for that plug for the Romans class, backhanded as it was. <laughs> uh, and I just want to say a word about that course. Um, you already know, most of you probably know, unless you're brand new here, we're going through the whole Bible in a year which has a really good side to it because just like flying an airplane at 35,000 feet, you, you see things you don't notice when you're down on the ground. So there's some real benefits to it. But if over time you're, starting, you're finding yourself a little, oh, I wish we could get deeper into some of these ideas, that's natural. It's kind of the idea, kind of the point, <laughs> as a matter of fact, to, to whet the appetite to dig a little deeper. Well, if that's been a, at all your experience this last few months, Romans class will be the polar opposite of that. We're just going to read a chapter a night together. We're going to go verse by verse. We're going to go wherever the verse takes us, discuss, uh, study, think about. Uh, and yeah, we're going to, this will be very much down into the weeds, if you want to use that word, of the book of Romans. Well, verse by verse, one chapter a week, uh, finishing in March. So we're going to give you a balanced diet here. We're going to do some overview things through the end of new, the New Testament, but we're going to really dig down deeply, a deep dive in Romans. So I hope you'll be able to join us there. Uh, as John said, and as we, we've already read, we are in Ephesians today. Uh, welcome to the, the town of Ephesus and the letter Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Uh, let's take a look at the first slide because I want credit for two alliterations today. By misspelling Ephesians, I get a credit for the top one. And then kind of, <laughs> yeah, they didn't teach me that in Bible college to misspell the book of Ephesians. Uh, we are going to introduce the book with a legitimate uh, alliteration. We're going to look at geography, grammar, and greetings. Let's start with geography. I've got a map again because I happen to love maps. This is left over from the message in Romans that I did uh, four weeks ago. You have to remember that in the, at a certain point in the book of Acts, the epicenter of the church of Jesus Christ moved north from Israel and Jerusalem up into the city of Antioch. This is the first church, the first city where the church of believers were really starting to get it because they became an intentionally mixed group of people who loved Jesus from the Gentile world, non-Israelites, and from the people of Israel. And they intentionally went through the hassle and the tension and the pressure 
of living together in one spiritual family. We've seen some of that pressure the last few weeks as we've looked at Corinthians and Galatians, and it was not an easy task to bring these different groups together. Antioch got it right, and they became the, the launching pad for the growth of the church throughout the rest of the Roman Empire through what we call the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. I've, uh, on the second journey, they got to the town of Ephesus, which is the focus of our study today. Ephesus was the Roman capital of that province of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. Well, obviously a port city, very important for the entire region. Ephesus mattered. And in his ministry, during his journeys, Paul actually spent more time there than he did anywhere else. We see that he spent uh, uh, more than two years there in Acts chapter 19. He came back and, and said goodbye to the elders he had trained and appointed there in Acts chapter 20. It's a very significant church in, in, in the region and in the history of the growth of the, of the early church. To make sure they didn't go leaderless, Paul actually left behind his assistant Timothy, who we'll be studying in just a few weeks. Uh, Timothy was left behind there when Paul had to move on to lead that church. And Timothy was no small name either in the early church. So you get a sense of where Ephesus ranked in terms of significance. Uh, let's go back to the, first, the, the, the next slide again. I want to talk about grammar for a minute. Now something just happened in the room. The English majors began leaning forward saying, oh, this is going to be cool. And everybody else rolled their eyes and checked out. Okay. <laughs> Grammar is nobody's favorite topic. But tr bear with me. It matters in this case because Ephesians is an example of a kind of structure of his letters that Paul used, not just here, but this is a prime example of it. It's called the indicative imperative approach to writing. Now, those are fancy words. They're moods, in, as we call them in English. Uh, indicative simply means a statement of truth. This is what is real. This is a fact. We want to be aware of this. And when Paul is writing in the indicative mood, he's saying things that he's expecting and asking his readers and us, 2,000 years later, to embrace and to believe and to accept. And then based on those uh, truths that he has just spelled out, he then shifts into the imperative mood, meaning there are commands. There are things to obey. So the indicative is what should be believed, and the imperative of what should be obeyed. Uh, and the book of Ephesians is a prime example of that. In fact, it gets split right down the middle. Uh, one through three is indicative mode. This is truth. This is doctrine. This is things we should grasp. And then four, five, and six is in light of all that, how should we live? What are the commands to be obeyed? And we'll see that as we look at the structure today. There's nothing exotic about this. We all talk in the indicative imperative every day, right? Without knowing it, I'll give you an example. I've got, I've got grandkids, and we're parking somewhere. I'm taking them shopping, and I, I say to my granddaughter, we're in a parking lot, indicative, hold my hand, imperative. Okay, there's, a, there's something to be believed. Look around, there's cars. <laughs> we're in a parking lot. Hold my hand. That's, that's a commandment, okay? Uh, rain is in the forecast. I just saw it on my app. They're saying it's going to rain. That's a fact. Take an umbrella. That's a command. All right, one more example. Uh, the Dodgers are the best team in baseball. <laughs> Fact, to be believed, embraced, yeah. cherished even. Wear Dodger blue when you preach on Sunday. That would be a, a, <laughs> an imperative, which I happily obeyed as I got ready to, to speak today. <laughs> oh, we've already divided the church. This is <laughs> it's a gift, John. It's a gift. <laughs> I'm glad to exercise it. 
So we've seen, we've seen the, the, the beginning, the intro here. We've got geography, we've got grammar, and then last we've got greetings. You've already noticed maybe that, that, and we'll see it more as we read more and more of Paul's letters, greetings are an important part of, of his writings. In the letter to the Romans we looked at four weeks ago, an entire chapter at the end was naming people by name in the Roman church. And what's remarkable was he'd never been there. He obviously had information. He had people connecting to, with him, saying, here's what's going on. Here are some people you should know. Here's some folks you should say hi to. Here's an issue you might want to address with people by name. What's ironic is, in the book of Romans, where he'd never visited, there were more greetings than any other letter. And I bring that up here in this letter because this is a place where Paul spent over two years, and there are no greetings. <laughs> Not only no greetings, he's not even really addressing specifically naming issues in the church that he's aware of that he has to, to focus on. Others of his letters, it's very clear. He's gotten information. He knows there's tension between these people. He knows this doctrine needs to be underlined because people are questioning it. He knows people in that church like Corinth were questioning him. Why should we listen to Paul? Why, why does he matter? Why is he any more important than we are? And, and it's clear from the way he writes those sections that he's addressing specific issues in that church. In this letter to the Ephesians, there's really none of that. It, it stands out, in fact, between the lack of greetings and the, uh, the, the, the sermony kind of feel of the letter uh, makes it remarkable compared to the rest of his letters. And it's led to some speculation. Some people, some Bible scholars, don't think Paul actually wrote this letter. That it's written by an imposter. Others think he, he wrote it, but he wrote it as a form letter. And it was addressed to the region, and people would insert the name of their church when they read it. There's all kinds of speculation about that. We're not going to unpack that. It doesn't really matter to the message of the book. But what does stand out is, because he's not really specifically thinking about what's going on necessarily in Ephesus, he's able to be above the fray, as I'll read in just a minute. In fact, there's a quote by a, by a, a Bible scholar named A. Skevington Wood, and if your middle name is Skevington, of course, you're going to go by A. Skevington Wood. That is the guy's name. Next slide. If, if I had a middle name like Skevington, I'd be M. Skevington Gaston. It's just, it would be too good to pass up. But let me read what this man wrote about this fact, that Ephesians stands out as a letter and that it's, it's unique compared to the other ones. He says this, Ephesians, unlike Colossians, was not devised to combat error and expose the inconsistencies of false teaching. Paul's aim was more detached and therefore more exalted. He rose above the smoke of battle and captured a vision of God's sovereign plan that transcends the bitterness of controversy and the necessity for the church militant here on earth to fight for its very existence. Paul stood aside from the conflict and contemplated God's overall design for his church and for his world. As he did so, he came to realize as never before the breathtaking scope of God's strategy in Christ for the fullness of time. See, because Paul was really contemplating what is God doing in the world and how are we to be part of what God is doing in the world, because that is his focus, pretty much his sole focus, this letter, compared to others of his writings, this letter soars. It's not down in the weeds of debate and controversy and speculation. It just soars into the stratosphere 
of, of glory and majesty. And that's why I was so tickled that I was invited to, to study it and to, to bring some news about it to us today. And that's why I want to pray right now that uh, as, as the book soars, that our time in it today would soar as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the beauty of these words and the truths that they represent. Thank you for Paul and giving him the wisdom to write them. And thank you for your protection over centuries so we can talk about this letter today. Would you guide our thoughts, guide my words? We are listening. We want you to speak. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I said earlier, this letter divides very easily in two equal sections. Chapters 1 through 3. He's calling the Ephesian readers to believe in God's amazing plan to save and unify Jews and Gentiles. And to do that, it seems like he's answering five rhetorical questions. Again, he hasn't gotten a letter with anyone asking this. He's just, he's framing it in this way. What are the questions he's addressing through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians? Here's the first one. Where do we stand with God? It's not just a fair question, that's a crucial question. Where do we stand with God? And the we in this case isn't the human race. It's, it's those among the human race that have bowed the knee to Jesus and become Christ's followers. Where do we stand with him? We get a feel for that in the very first chapter. I want to read verses, one through, uh, verses 3 and 4 Sorry, in chapter 1. There's a beautiful introduction, and we're just going to read a part of it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We'll stop there. I emphasize two phrases there because these are the first two occurrences of a phrase, variations of which occur regularly through the rest of this introduction to the letter. Some version of in him or in Christ appears 11 times in 13 verses. Folks, I hope we've learned to, to pay attention to when God repeats himself, <laughs> okay? Because he doesn't have to. When he says it once, it's true. When he says it twice, sit up and pay attention. When he says it 11 times in 13 verses, it matters. Those of you who come to the Romans class, in fact, I'm going to distribute each week a, a, a chapter that we're studying, uh, coloring in red the words that are repeats as a kind of a, a self-training thing to, okay, wh what are the repetitive ideas that stand out here? Because we can't skip that part when we're talking about what the chapter means. If we did that in the book of Ephesians, 11 times, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, in him, in whom, it appears over and over again. And it's worth asking, what does that phrase mean? It pops up over and over. It's got to mean something significant. And Romans chapter 15 gives us a little help where we see the, we see the verse, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. We basically learn a, 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 a theological idea called positional union that basically means this. From God's perspective, the entire human race can be divided into two groups. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. We're all born in Adam. That's, that's the default setting. And those who are in Adam share in all that Adam is, has, and does. And you can call it original sin, if you like. There's all kinds of ways to describe it. But we, we know we come into this world under that cloud, under that responsibility as sinners born far from God. And somewhere along the way, we need to switch groups to being from in Adam to being in Christ. 
And when we went through Romans uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about that transfer of kingdoms. And that phrase, at that time we used the kingdom analogy. We're born in the wrong kingdom, the kingdom of this age, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan, to use that phrase. We need to shift to the kingdom of God. And that shift happens through conversion. It happens through bowing the knee, hearing the gospel and responding to it the way God has designed us to. And when we take that step, we move from being in Adam to being in Christ. And all the blessings that come with being seen by God as being surrounded by, covered by, actually integrated into his beloved son. All of the blessings of the Christian life come with that. So Jesus is, is, has eternal life. He shares that eternal life with us. He's the, he's the firstborn. We become joint heirs with him. All, all the good stuff of our faith happens because God chooses to see us as being in Christ. So this first question is, where do we stand with God as believers? Well, he sees us as in his son, and it happens over and over. Second question, how did we get there? I just kind of previewed that a moment ago, but let's, let me read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Maybe one of the best known and best loved passages in all the New Testament, definitely in the book of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a glance back to the book of Romans, remember, where when he began spelling out the gospel, he started with the wrath of God, well earned uh, by the rebels that populate this world. And then verse 4, but... God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In God's eyes, we're so in Jesus that we're seated with him now where he is in heaven in a positional spiritual kind of way. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. There it is. There's the memory verse from Awana in Sunday school. <laughs> if you've been, ever been involved in that. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Remember I said this book soars? Here's a soaring passage. You, you can sense Paul's passion and his enthusiasm. He said, look at this amazing story, this good news. You're saved, you're in Christ, but you didn't do it. You didn't earn it. It's a gift God gave to those who bow the knee to Jesus. And that's the, that's the powerful message of Ephesians chapter 2. So how, where do we stand with God? We're in Jesus. How did we get there? We, we got there by trusting the, the gospel and bowing the knee to Jesus. Who is there with us is the third question in this beginning section. And that gets a little surprising to the readers of the day, a little less to us. But when you're reading a book like this, it's good to try to put yourself back in the place of the original recipients. What did these words mean to them? What, did they th what were they thinking as they were reading or hearing this read in their congregation? Well, there's a little bit of a surprise here, starting in uh, Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, as he turns to the Gentile believers now, 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time, and here's the dark side again, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Another one of those dark diagnoses of the problem. But now, instead of but God, he uses but now here. In Christ Jesus, there's that phrase again, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He's addressing a group of Christ's followers who, maybe to their own surprise, find themselves sitting side by side, eating side by side, loving as family, people who until a certain point in their life were seen as at worst really weird, or even the enemy, people that should be avoided at all costs. Because that's the world they grew up in. There's a very sharp divide, especially if they grew up an Israelite. If they grew up in Ephesus of, of a Jewish family, the, the work they had to do to keep themselves unstained and uncorrupted by the Gentile world around them was huge. It consumed their time and their energy. And now they become Christ followers, recognizing Jesus as their Messiah. And, and, and their Gentile neighbor does the same. And they're sitting down in a home and sharing a meal and praising God. And they must be saying, how did this happen? Didn't see this coming. It was that radical in that day. And Paul is celebrating it here. That, that wall of hostility has been knocked down. That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus came to do. Now, I pointed out there's a but God in the first section. This is a but now. And he's saying to the Gentiles, your role has changed. Your world has changed. I mentioned earlier, Antioch was the first church that really got it right. Prior to the church in Antioch intentionally becoming multi-ethnic, multi-racial, if you want to use that word. Prior to that, it was a big issue in Jerusalem. You might recall when, when Peter was forced by the Holy Spirit to cross the threshold of a Roman centurion's home and brought the good news of Jesus to a Roman occupier and saw the Holy Spirit fall on them and them enter the kingdom of God. When he got back to Jerusalem, he, he didn't have fans who celebrated this breakthrough. He had accusers. Peter, what are you doing? We don't do that. We don't step into the homes of the occupying powers. What were you thinking? <laughs> In one of the amazing stories of the book of Acts, after giving us the blow-by-blow -blow description of that conversion of Cornelius and his family in his home, he comes back and it's almost another word-for-word -word description. It's almost like it repeat. That's how much God wanted the readers back then and us to know this moment mattered. Remember when God repeats himself? <laughs> we pay attention. The story of the breakthrough in the home of Cornelius, God repeated himself. And, and even at that, there was struggling in the Jerusalem church. And there were former Pharisees who were now Christ followers who had wanted nothing to do with these Gentiles. John mentioned the whole conflict in, in, to the Galatians was Christians were coming along saying, you can't be Christian unless you're Jewish too. 
You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the kosher eating regulations. You've got to be like us to follow Jesus. And it was a constant battle in the early church. So, in the church in Ephesus, they're, they're hopefully celebrating that same truth, but I'm sure it created some tensions as well. So, where do we stand? We're in him. How do we get there? Through conversion and obeying the gospel. Who's there with us? <laughs> Jews and Gentiles. The fourth question is this one. Why didn't we see this coming? If this was the plan all along, how come it, it's surprising us like it does? And here there's something kind of interesting. Paul refers in chapter 3 to something called the mystery. The mystery of, of the kingdom. The depth of the Gentile involvement among God's people was unexpected. Troubling to Israelites, maybe shocking to Gentiles. Do we really get to be part of this too? And Paul addresses the why didn't we see this coming in chapter 3. I'll read verses 4 through 6. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here it comes. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. He refers to it as a mystery, not because nobody got it in his day. It was a mystery in that people until his day didn't get it. The Israelites assumed they were God's people. In fact, they were told to avoid everybody else. Don't be like them. If they want to come and be with you, okay. But there was, there was this wall of separation, at least in their hearts, if not on their border, saying, we are the chosen people. We're God's favorites. And you guys aren't. And, and it's going to be that way forever. And then along comes the gospel. And along comes the kingdom of God. And along comes Cornelius' house. And along comes Antioch. And along comes this breakthrough. The people of God are global. The people of God is everybody who bows the knee to Jesus. You don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. That phrase doesn't shake us at all in our day. But boy, did it shake people back in that day. And Paul refers to it as a mystery. This was kept from people in the past. But now that Jesus came, now that Jesus died, now that he made clear all through the Gospels that he has a global plan to save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, now it's time to get serious about that. And the Ephesian church is living that out. So they are fellow heirs, those Gentiles, they're members of the same body, partakers of that promise because of the gospel. Now, now, here's the cool part. The fifth question is, what's the purpose of all this? What is God trying to do? What, why wasn't it enough that he had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the descendants of those people and he, and he saved one nation out of the... Would, would that have not been enough? Already his mercy would be clear, his grace would be obvious... What's the purpose behind all the work required to change the prejudices and knock down these barriers between people? What's the idea? And we find that spelled out with great passion in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, get ready for this now, 
so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What's the big deal? Why is God going to all this trouble of saving people from all corners of the world who used to hate each other? And thanks to the gospel and thanks to their faith and thanks to the transformation of of the Holy Spirit, now love people they used to hate? Now eat with people they never set foot in the house two years ago? What's the whole idea? Get ready for this. God is showing off. He's saying to some it's a pretty mysterious group. Principalities and powers. No, what's the phrase they use here? Uh, authorities in the heavenly places. It's a little bit unclear. And there's a little debate over who he's talking about there. But the, what's clear is this. God is pointing to somebody and saying, you see that messed up world down there? See how divided they are? You know, Cain killed Abel and, and, and that began the whole mess. Watch this. Watch what my gospel can do. Oh, I just got goosebumps. (laughs) Watch what my spirit can do. Watch what the gospel can do. Those barriers you see, but they're going to come down. That hatred, the walls in people's hearts toward people who aren't like them, demolished. They're going to become one spiritual family. He's pointing to somebody, saying, watch what I'm going to do in my church. Friends, that is astounding to me. And it raises the stakes, doesn't it, on who we are and our role in this amazing plan God came up with (laughs) from the very beginning to do something amazing and majestic in this world of his. I want to read a quote from from John Piper, who doesn't have a a funny middle name, but who, who spells this out in ways that I really love. The cosmic mission of the church is to display before the hosts of heaven the manifold wisdom of God. By the way, Piper is among those who, who take this host of heaven to be negative. He thinks these are, are, are evil spiritual beings God is showing off to. Others think they're just they're angels. They're the angels who sing holy, 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 and God's saying, watch what I'm about to do. Who knows? They could both be right. I don't know. But he, you'll see a little better in a minute why, why it's clear that that's what John Piper thinks. But he says this. You are the light of the world, but not merely that, You're the light of the cosmos with the spectacular mission of revealing the wisdom of God to supernatural beings. Wow. How are we, the church, to make this wisdom known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places? What the church is to do is demonstrate the wisdom of God in God's mysterious plan. The wisdom of a plan is seen by the fact that it works. We show the wisdom of God by showing in the church that it is working. The death of Christ was not in vain. It reconciled us to God. It's broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and other races. It's produced one new body. It's given us hope in his immeasurable kindness forever. We show the wisdom of God to cosmic powers by living this way, being the church Christ died to create. Friends, don't let that bounce off your heart. What a role! We've been giving. What a privilege to be the the tool through which God says, watch what I can do in this messed up world. He's pointing to us. And he's saying either to angelic beings who praise him all day long or to rebellious angels, demons, and, and Satan who say, you can't fix this world. He's saying, yes, I can. Watch what my church does when they live in unity 
when they live transformed lives, the stakes are incredibly high. And the privilege that comes with those stakes is amazing. I'm, I'm rereading a book uh, by Philip Yancey called Where the Light Fell. An amazing testimony, it's a memoir of a Christian writer who's been writing all kinds of books for decades. But he grew up, and I don't want to give too much away if you want to read the book. I'll, I'll just say he grew up in a very sheltered, southern, racist context. Highly Christian, highly biblicized, highly, highly spiritual, with all the trappings of what we would consider church life. And yet, in the 50s and 60s of the American South, it was permeated with not unity with other people who aren't like us, but with animosity and hostility and, yea, even hatred. And the story he tells as he wrestled with that as a young man and then as a young adult is riveting. How did he get to the point where he embraced the goal of Ephesians chapter 3, that God wants us to love people not like us and to have that wall, that barrier be knocked down? He got there. Sadly, his brother didn't. And the contrast between the two is, is striking. This is going on today. Uh, when we lived in France, I, I led a team of missionaries in France, one of which was uh, a man who had come to Christ out of a Moroccan Muslim background. His given first name was Muhammad. He went by Ben, <laughs> for possibly obvious reasons. Uh, he became a Christ follower in the U.S., was sent back to France to, to, to bring the gospel to North Africans living in southern France with the goal of taking that good news across the Mediterranean to Morocco and Tunisia and other Muslim nations. In the, in the role he was playing as a Christ-following Muslim background believer, he became part of a, a group of meetings that were held all over the major cities across Europe. And in these public gatherings, Christ-following former Muslims would meet on stage with Messianic believers in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, knowing, and everyone knowing, that historically and even in current headlines, those two groups should be about as antagonistic as you could imagine. And yet in these public gatherings, under the banner of common faith in Jesus Christ, these groups of people embraced and forgave one another and expressed the unity of the Holy Spirit because they're all members of the church of Jesus Christ. And I, I can imagine God pointing to those meetings and saying to those heavenly authorities, watch this. Watch what I'm about to do. Friends, if I can tangent just for a minute, this is one reason among several that I'm dismayed that in our current climate, the idea of racial reconciliation at the church level has become such a hot potato. And it's become complicated with phrases like CRT and wokeness and, and all the rest. And I'm not here to debate whether things go too far. Please, don't, don't go there. All I want to say is this was God's idea. <laughs> okay, It's God's idea from the start that those walls of separation will be knocked down by common faith in Jesus. And whatever that will look like in our day, we should chase it. We must pursue it. What could be our version of those reconciliation gatherings all over Europe where Muslim background believers and, 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 and Jewish believers embrace because they're brothers and sisters in Christ? What would that have to look like here among us? It's worth pursuing. It's worth dialoguing about. It's worth avoiding the extremes and the nastiness and the, I'm going to dig in my heels and this is my trench. I'm going to die on this hill. 
can we at least get to the point where we say, this was God's idea. If Ephesians 3 doesn't take us there, we're not understanding it. Okay, end of tangent. All right, this is the indicative. This is the facts. This is truth to be believed, and it soars, and it's majestic. And Piper says, we prove the wisdom of God by being the church Jesus Christ died to make us be. Okay, next question is, how do we be that church? How do we play the role that that he's calling us to? Well, funny you should ask, because Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 answer the question. (laughs) Okay, because now we turn to the imperative part. Now, based on what we've learned in 1 through 3, what kind of people should we be? What should we look like? What should we sound like? What should our behavior be? And now we get into the obedience part of the book. In one word, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is concerned with the walk of Christ's followers. Again, the principle being, and when God repeats himself, pay attention. The word walk appears five times in chapters 4 and 5. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. Look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. He's saying, you Christians who hopefully have embraced the truth of one through three, what should your life look like? What should our lives look like? And he underlines five ways the Christian life should be impacted by who we are in Christ. First is, I already mentioned it, won't surprise you, our unity with other believers. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. No surprise here. He's just described how important that unity is. And now he's saying, maintain it, live it out, protect it, relish it, enjoy it, cherish it. Do all these things because that's what God went out of his way to do. Secondly, he says, in addition to unity, there should be a before and after, before and after contrast with our former lives. I'll read verses 22 through 24 of chapter 4. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed by... The, did I read that right? No, I'm sorry. 4.23, yeah, I did, okay. I'm throwing my glasses on, that, that doesn't help. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's saying there's an old us and a new us. Put off the old us. That was messed up. That was corrupted. That was full of animosity and hatred and sinful desires and all the rest. Put it off and put on the new you. The you you can be because of Jesus. And we'll get to the Holy Spirit in just a minute. The before and after contrast with the lives, in the lives of Christ followers should be clear. Our behavior should reflect that we are in Christ with all that that means. Verses uh, chapter 5, 17 and 18, uh, shift the focus to the Holy Spirit, where he says this, as part of the kind of people we're supposed to be. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We've talked about the Father's plan, we've talked about Jesus uh, coming to die to knock down those barriers, Well, now the Holy Spirit gets involved. Because he's been referred to in other writings of Paul, uh, Corinthians 
a couple weeks ago, your temples of the Holy Spirit, he's here, he's in you. Well, now we find we're not just supposed to be containers of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. In the same way a, a, a drunk man is, is controlled by the alcohol in his bloodstream, we have the Holy Spirit in our spiritual bloodstream, and he should be the driving force in how we act and what we say and what we do and what we love and what we promote. Be filled with the Spirit is uh, the third way, third area in which our lives should reflect that we're in Christ. Family relationships come into play later in chapter 22, in chapter 5, sorry, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And then in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. More ink has been spilled <laughs> over this chapter and more, more controversy and more debate than anything else probably in this book, which is kind of sad because there's other things. On the overall scope of things, there's a lot more shocking stuff in this book than these verses. And yet, in our culture, obviously, these are issues. And how do we live this out? And what does it mean? And obviously, in three minutes, I'm not going to unpack in much detail uh, what this all means. I just want to say this. The way my wife and I flesh this out in our own marriage, uh, I want to read this right because I don't want to get in trouble when I get home. Uh, <laughs> she's nodding in the back. Our family lives should and must be impacted by the fact that we are in Christ. Our family life should reflect who we are individually and who we are as a family and a married life, who we are as a couple. And then I'll, I'll simplify it down to this one phrase. I think this passage tells us that I, as a husband, I will answer to God for our family life in ways that are unique to me as the spiritual leader of my home. That doesn't mean my wife won't answer to God. Of course, we all answer to God for how we live our lives and how we guide our families. But there is something unique in my role as a husband, and, and I take that seriously. I don't want to abandon that responsibility. I want to know that I'm going to stand before God and answer for the kind of leadership I provided in my family and get ready for this. Did I love Jesus like Christ loved the church? Got quiet, didn't it? Did I love Jesus in the same way Christ loved the church? Should my love for her remind her of Jesus' love for her? Now, I used that phrase in a sermon a few years ago. I'm going to tell the story on you, dear. And the next week, she was working, and she said, Husband, if you would help me fold the sheets, you would remind me of Jesus. <laughs> so, you, you can pay for the things you, you, you believe. <laughs> but that's the bottom line, I think, of this passage. And then, finally, in our spiritual warfare in chapter 6, maybe the second most famous, third most famous passage of the book of Ephesians, the famous armor of God, the spiritual warfare element, recognizing those heavenly authorities that maybe God is showing off to, well, they don't like it. They want to undermine it. They, they don't want us to succeed in being the church Jesus died to create. And so they'll do all they can to, to mess us up and, and build those walls back up again. And sadly, often it works for a while. And so we're called as Christ followers, aware of the battle we're in, to put on the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And then it says to stand firm. He's not, we're not walking anymore at that point. God's happy if we just stand firm in that battle and don't give ground and don't retreat and don't back up. That's what we're called to in that battle. So friends, let me close with these couple of questions. 
have you and I believed enthusiastically and embraced the truth of chapters 1 through 3? Are we excited to be in Christ? What a privilege. Are we embraced the removal of the barriers between us and other believers? Are we excited about the cosmic impact we can have as the church of Jesus Christ, as God shows off by pointing to us? And then have we obeyed the commands of chapters 4, 5, and 6? Is there a part of your walk that hasn't yet been, been brought up to that point where you're thinking, this is where it needs to be? It might be in one of the five areas I mentioned. It might be something totally different. But I hope we'll embrace a new motivation to walk, to obey, to be, not just to believe, but to have that belief flesh out in our lives in ways that are visible and obvious so that someone looking at us individually and corporately could, could, could recognize that even if they don't know what the phrase in Christ means, they would kind of get it because they see us. And us being in Christ matters. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this majestic, soaring book. Would you make us worthy of this message? Help us to walk in a manner worthy of this high calling you've given to us. And would you be able to point to me and to us when you want to show off to the heavenly authorities? What a privilege that is, Lord. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.